Folks, have you checked out the Irish History Podcast shop recently? Right now, I have a sale of 30% off everything when you use the code SALE30. So go to irishhistorypodcast.ie forward slash shop and get 30% off everything when you use the discount code SALE30. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Normally, being a little extra might be a bit much, but not when it comes to healthcare. That's why United Healthcare's Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, supplement your primary plan so you manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Hello and welcome to the Irish History Podcast. My name is Finn Dwyer. In this show, we are returning to the story of the Norman invasion of Ireland. So far in my series on the invasion, a lot has happened. The Normans have landed in big numbers, taking the Kingdom of Leinster as well as the important towns of Dublin, Wexford and Waterford. With an invasion comes chaos and in this episode, I'm going to pause the story to take a look at what life in Ireland was actually like around the year 1174 after years of warfare and conquest, had taken their toll on society. As we shall see, some areas in Ireland were being transformed in nearly every way imaginable. Others were gripped by utter chaos as they were ravaged by warfare, while others still remained untouched completely. To allow us get a good overall picture of Ireland, this podcast will take the form of a trip around the island in 1174. We will visit the major towns and kingdoms, looking at how the Norman invasion was changing Ireland. Before we set out on this trip, I want to update you about my upcoming book, 1348 and Medieval Apocalypse, The Black Death in Ireland. Research is going well, and I have decided that instead of going down the traditional route of working with publishers, I'm going to crowdfund this book, which means it gives people like you who are interested in Irish history the chance to get involved. Basically, crowdfunding will see lots of people contribute small amounts of money to make this project happen. I like this model as it allows me to work much more closely with you, the audience. If you fund this project, you will, in effect, become the publisher. Funders, like you, will receive rewards including an audio copy of the book narrated by myself. You can find out more about this and the other cool rewards at irishhistorypodcast.ie forward slash book. If you have been considering contributing to the podcast, this is the best way and time to do it. So go to irishhistorypodcast.ie forward slash book and check out the video there which explains the whole project in detail. To start our journey, I want to return to the year 1174 and begin with the story of an unusual document written in that year. One of the oldest deeds preserved in the archives of Christ Church Cathedral Dublin before they were destroyed 
during the Irish Civil War of 1922 was a transaction between Strongbow on the one hand and a leading Dubliner of the day, Hammond MacTurkle. Dating from around 1174, the document records Strongbow, then acting as the King's representative in Ireland, recognising Hammond's right to hold on to some of the lands he had owned prior to the arrival of the Normans in Ireland. This deed was a microcosm of how much the Norman invasion was changing the island. Hammond's family, the MacTurkles, had been the rulers of Dublin before the arrival of the Normans in 1170. Indeed, a relative of Hammond's, Askel MacTurkle, had been beheaded in the city three years earlier for trying to oppose the Norman takeover. Now, in 1174, in a very changed Dublin, Hammond, far from being connected to the town's rulers, could only hold on to his property with Strongbow's permission. While we will return to the story of Hammond later in the show, this document in 1174, confirming the land onto him, is also interesting for another reason, as it reveals some of the interesting changes underway in Dublin and some of the interesting people arriving in the wake of the Norman invasion. On the document there are several recorded witnesses. These include Strongbow's uncle, Herbie de Montmorency, Morris Fitzgerald and Mayor Fitzhenry, all prominent Norman figures in Ireland. However, another witness was a more unusual and interesting figure. This was an elusive man called Marcus Judius. Marcus, judging from his name, we can safely assume was a Jew. His presence is interesting because Jews rarely feature in medieval Irish history. Indeed, the only previous mention of Jews before Marcus dates to the year 1079. While nothing else is known about Marcus's life, save he witnessed this agreement between Strongbow and MacTurkle, other events provide some details as to why he may have been in Ireland and associating with Strongbow. It's highly likely Marcus was actually representing the interests of another Jew, a man called Josca from Gloucester in England, who had financed Strongbow's invasion. Marcus may well have been in Ireland to ensure Josca received the monies owed to him by Strongbow. New to Dublin, as he was in 1174, Marcus Judius is an idea figure through whom we can take a look at the changes underway around the rest of Ireland. While we know little about his life, I am going to take liberties and bring Marcus on a journey around Ireland in 1174, beginning with a look at Dublin, before examining the rest of the island. Arriving in Dublin some time after the year 1170, when it had fallen to the Normans, Marcus would have found a town similar to other towns in England in many respects. Indeed, Dublin was a well-known port across Europe by the 12th century. It was, however, slightly rougher around the edges than what Marcus might have been used to in England. For example, in Britain, the Normans had begun to build timber frame and even in some cases stone houses in towns, while Dubliners were still living in post and wattle structures built from saplings and mud as they had for centuries. In the early 1170s, Dublin still lacked some of the more notable buildings we would associate with a medieval town. Unlike Gloucester, for example, where Marcus may have come from, Dublin still had no major stone cathedral in the 1170s. However, the Normans had plans to overhaul the settlement. The large wooden church in the centre of the town would be transformed into the massive priory of the Holy Trinity, or as we know today, Christchurch Cathedral but that was still decades away from completion in 1174. Similarly, the town had no major stone castle either. There was a fortress of sorts in the southeastern corner, but the Normans had plans on this front too. 
In 1204, this would be torn down and the imposing fortification that was Dublin Castle was erected. In the 1170s, the population of the town was small, no more than a few thousand, and they were, no doubt, reeling from what had been a hard few years as the settlement had been convulsed by the chaos that had come with the Norman invasion. Firstly, the Normans had taken Dublin by storm. Then, the following summer of 1171, the population had endured the longest siege in their history when Roy O'Connor's army blockaded the town for about eight weeks, destroying the farms in the hinterland. If this wasn't enough, only a few months after the siege was lifted, King Henry II arrived with a massive army of several thousand men. But from contemporary accounts, we know this army brought with it disease that no doubt swept through Dublin's narrow, dirty streets. That said, despite everything, Dublin in 1174 was growing in size and this was due to tensions from the invasion. The new Norman rulers of Dublin did not trust the population of the town, or at least the leading members of the Hiberno-Norse community. They're the people descended from the Vikings who had founded Dublin. To guarantee their own security inside the walls, the Normans forced these people to the north bank of the River Liffey. There, in 1174, Marcus would have seen a new suburb of Dublin taking shape, Oxmantown, a name that refers to the Viking ancestors of this suburb's founders. In these tumultuous days, Dublin would still have been a sight to behold for a visitor. It must have been a real melting pot of peoples, an early indication of what lay ahead in the decades to come under Norman rule. It appears that even in the early years of the 1170s, Marcus would have seen many people like himself, men, women and children, who had come from Norman, England and Wales to settle the conquered lands in Ireland. Gerald of Wales, the Norman chronicler, tells us that by 1173 there were enough settlers in the town of Warford to withstand an uprising there. There is no reason to believe the same was not the case in Dublin. However, the town wasn't just populated by Norman settlers. There would obviously have been large numbers of people of Viking descent. But perhaps more distinctive were the Gaelic Irish who would have formed a majority or at least a significant minority in the town. Working as labourers and indeed military allies of the Normans, they were quite distinctive, wearing what was a large cloak known as a brath in cold weather, with distinctive shaved foreheads and long hair growing at the back, speaking a dialect of Irish, they no doubt raised an eye from visitors like Marcus. By 1174, there were other signs in Dublin streets that the Norman invasion was changing the makeup of the town. The Knights Hospitaller, a military order of monks associated with the Crusades and best known for their black garb adorned with an eight-pointed white cross, had been granted lands by King Henry II at Kilmainham, scarcely a mile west of the town. Similarly, to the north of Dublin, the Knights Templar had received thousands of acres around Clontarf. No doubt these monks, with tales of battles in the Middle East, were seen in the streets of the town on occasion. While the impact of the invasion were visible in the town streets, it was outside the walls of Dublin where Marcus would have seen the much darker side to the Norman invasion. To explore this, we will now accompany him on a journey around Ireland. Millions of people have lost weight with personalised plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? 
For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Now, let's get back to the show. Leaving Dublin, the first destination on the trip was the Monastery of Four. The journey to Four took Marcus through the once mighty Kingdom of Mead. However, in 1174, this was one of the most unstable and violent regions in Ireland. Mead's glorious past, when its kings had dominated Ireland, were long gone. Over the previous century it had been weakened by internal feuding and long before the Normans had ever come, the kings of Connacht, Breffney and Leinster had been fighting for control over it. Worse was to follow. In 1172, Henry II had granted Mead to the Norman noble Walter de Lacy. While de Lacy didn't immediately settle the land, by 1174 he had made his presence felt when he had raided a vast stretch of territory from Dublin to the Monastery of Four. According to one source, de Lacy had even stayed at the monastery for a fortnight, consumed its food and then burned the surrounding town. The blackened timber beams of what had been the town surrounding Four were grim portents of what lay ahead for Meath. The Norman conquest was only beginning, and it would be a bloody and painful affair. Indeed, by 1175, the Normans would describe how many of the Gaelic Irish had fled. Little surprise, given what was happening. North of Four Abbey lay the frontier between Meath and the Kingdom of Breffney, which was ruled by the O'Rourkes. However, in 1174, Breffney too was reading from the impact of the Norman invasion, and Marcus coming from Dublin, would have known why. In 1172, Hugh de Lacy had killed the King of Breffany, Tiernan O'Rourke, and mutilated his body. His rotting head had adorned a spike above the gate of Dublin, where his decapitated body was hung upside down elsewhere. Tiernan had ruled for 50 years, and now in his absence, his kingdom faced an uncertain future. Not only did they have to worry about the ambitious Norman lord, de Lacy, as a neighbour, but worse still, Tiernan's death had triggered an internal power struggle between his family members. While Meath and Breffney displayed all the signs of a land torn by the invasion, further north in Ireland there were kingdoms which had played a less important role in the invasion so far, but would be decisive in decades to come. So next, we will journey deep into Ulster. Leaving the ruins of Four behind him, Marcus would inevitably have made his way to the famed town of Armagh, the biggest settlement outside of the coastal ports established by the Vikings. This journey took him north into the province of Ulster through the kingdom of Argylla. 
This traditionally would have been the beginning of the zone of influence of the powerful O'Neill family of Western Ulster. While the kings of Argylla were fiercely independent, they had for several centuries been forced to submit to their O'Neill rivals. However, things were changing. The O'Neills of Western Ulster were in total chaos when Marcus arrived in 1174, although it should be said this had little or nothing to do with the Normans. This chaos had given the O'Carroll kings of Argylla a chance to reorientate themselves towards the rising star of the 12th century, the King of Connacht, Rory O'Connor. Indeed, they had already fought alongside Rory at the Siege of Dublin in 1171. Two days' journey from Four Abbey, our traveller Marcus would have arrived at Armagh. This town had grown up around a famous monastery there, but over the centuries it had become an important political settlement in Ulster as well. All the kings of the province kept houses in the town, while even the O'Neills from the other side of Ulster had buried their kings in the environs of the monastery. Despite its semi-sacred status among the Gaelic kings, a man like Marcus, being a supporter of the Normans, would still have found a pretty positive reception. In 1174, the reigning Archbishop of Armagh, Galicius, was in his last few months of life at the age of 84. Despite this great age, only two years previously, he had travelled to Dublin and met with Henry II, and, like other church leaders in Ireland, had lent his support to the Norman presence on the island and backed Henry's overlordship. While this policy may have made a man like Marcus feel welcome, one can only wonder what kind of internal tensions it caused in Armagh. While Armagh was unquestionably the main urban centre in Ulster, a further two days' ride to the west lay the political heart of the province, Tyrone, home of the O'Neill family. While they had stayed out of the fighting against the Normans so far, there can be little doubt the Normans would have heard of this family. They had produced some of Ireland's most famous kings, Niall Coyle, Niall of the Black Knee, his grandson Donal, and many, many more. However, as Marcus passed into Western Ulster, he would have seen little evidence that this was, or ever had been, a powerful region. Around 150 years previously, the O'Neill family had split into two factions, the McLaughlins and another faction which maintained the family name O'Neill. The resulting feud had seen unparalleled assassinations, retributions and revenge killings. Indeed, it had taken nearly a century for some stability to emerge when a man called Murkertoch McLaughlin came to power in the 1140s. But, as we saw in part one of this series, he fell from power amid dramatic circumstances in 1166 and a new round of assassinations and power struggles began. When Marcus ventured into this region in 1174, Western Ulster was still firmly divided, as the McLaughlins, based around modern Inishon, and the O'Neills, based around their famous inauguration site at Tullahogue, continued to battle for dominance. Our traveller, no doubt, thought the Normans had little to fear, but this was an illusion. The O'Neills were the sleeping giant of medieval Ireland. When they resolved their internal tensions, a power would emerge that was more than a match for the Normans, but that is a story for future shows. So far, Marx's journey has revealed an Ireland at war with itself as much as it was at war with the Normans. But when he left Ulster, he found a slightly less chaotic kingdom to its south. 
Before we continue, I just want to remind you all again of the crowdfunding campaign for my new book, 1348, A Medieval Apocalypse, The Black Death in Ireland. You can find out more at irishhistorypodcast.ie forward slash book. As I said earlier, if you have been thinking of donating to the show, this is the best way to do it and you'll get something pretty cool in return. So don't forget to check out irishhistorypodcast.ie forward slash book. The route south from Ulster took Marcus over the River Urn, perhaps at the famous ford of Assaro, where generations of northern kings had repelled invaders. He then passed through Brefany, a narrow, inhospitable, and as we saw earlier, internally divided kingdom since the murder of its king, Tiernan O'Rourke, in 1172. While technically a vassal kingdom of Connacht, under Tiernan, Brefni had grown increasingly independent. Passing through this country of hills and lakes, Marcus emerged into the most powerful kingdom in Ireland, Connacht. Ruled by the O'Connors and in the person of Rory O'Connor since 1156, it had been the armies of Connacht that had led the most stout resistance to the Normans on the island, largely due to the fact that under Rory, and his father Turlock it should be said, they had formed one of the most cohesive kingdoms in Ireland. However, the O'Connors were not immune from the internal tensions that were dividing other Gaelic kingdoms. In 1174, Rory's power was fading. He had failed to land any major blow on the Normans, and indeed, he had somehow managed to snatch defeat from the jaws of victory at the Siege of Dublin in 1171. This unquestionably undermined the man's authority, and Rory had a very extensive family with ambitious sons, brothers, nephews and even grandsons, all willing to challenge for the kingship. In this manner, the Norman invasion was impacting Connacht, sowing the seeds of division, which in time would prove the undoing of the kingdom's unity. The eastern border of Connacht was the Shannon, Ireland's longest river, and this was the easiest and by far the fastest and safest route to move south through the province. A journey down this river for Marcus would have eventually taken him to the town of Limerick. Founded by the Vikings, it had grown through trade initially under Viking kings and then from 976 onwards under the tutelage of the O'Brien kings of Thomond. In 1174, it was in the hands of the Normans after having been handed over as part of a deal with Henry II. It was surrounded on all sides by the kingdom of Thomond, which in 1174 was ruled by Donal O'Brien, who we have met earlier in the series. Of all the kings in Ireland, bar the MacMurras, Donal O'Brien had benefited most from the Norman invasion. In 1169, the Norman, Robert Fitzstephen, had even briefly fought for Donal. For Marcus, the internal rivalries that had been such a feature of politics through much of his travel in Ireland were still a feature in this part of the country. Thomond was only one part of an older kingdom, Munster, which had traditionally been ruled by one king, but in the 1170s it was divided between Thomond, meaning North Munster, ruled by the O'Briens, and Desmond, meaning South Munster, ruled by the McCarthys. These families had one of the oldest rivalries in 12th century Ireland, fuelled by a continuous and bloody feud since at least the 950s. For an observer like Marcus, it was clear from his journey around Ireland that Gaelic society was as much at war with itself as it was with the Normans. The kings of Connacht, Western Ulster, Thomond or Desmond were more interested in their own kingdoms than anything else. 
Indeed, they viewed other Gaelic kings as much as a threat as they did the Normans. This will be a crucial factor in the development of the invasion and in coming podcasts. While the journey so far has revealed an Ireland in 1174 reeling under the impact of the invasion in varying different ways, it was in the East that society was undergoing the most phenomenal change as the Normans took control not only militarily but also began to reshape society, driving many off the land. Returning east from Thomond and Limerick, the last leg of the journey brings us back to Dublin. Passing through the Kingdom of Ossory, this would have taken Marcus into Leinster. Situated in the southeast corner of the island, with Dublin on its northern border, the changes and the impact of the invasion in Leinster was unlike anything anywhere else in Ireland. While there was still warfare in parts of the kingdom, by 1174 much of Leinster was firmly in the grip of Strongbow and the Normans. Indeed, they were already beginning to divvy up the land and introduce profound and sweeping changes that impacted everyday life across the kingdom. The Norman ruler of Leinster, that Strongbow, had no interest in ruling Leinster in the same way that the Gaelic MacMurrah kings had done. He did not want to simply become an overlord of the Gaelic-Irish and their economic system. He had soldiers who had come from Wales, who had fought for him, bled for him. They now needed to be repaid and the payment was going to be land. Therefore, the Gaelic-Irish occupants had to be forced off the land or, alternatively, accept a much more diminished role as tenants for their new Norman masters. This meant disaster for many families who had once been powerful. No doubt, as Marcus travelled through Leinster, he would have encountered constant stories of misery from the Gaelic Irish who were being dispossessed. However, there was also an even more fundamental change underway, as Strongbow's vision of the future in Leinster was very different to the Kingdom of Leinster's experience of its Gaelic past. Strongbow wanted to restructure the very fabric of society and indeed the landscape itself. The impact of these changes was profound for Gaelic society. Norman farming systems were radically different to Gaelic-Irish methods and this had a huge impact on society. As the Normans farmed land in a more intensive manner, the landscape of Leinster was reorganised. A wide variety of crops were introduced and sown, the surplus of which were exported. To facilitate this, the Normans began planning market towns and ports across Leinster. It must have been truly staggering to live through this transformation that took place in the three decades following the 1170s. It was, in many ways, a medieval equivalent to the building boom that occurred in recent years in Ireland. How the Gaelic-Irish reacted to this transformation varied from place to place in Leinster. In some situations where they were unwilling to accept their position and revolted, they were driven off the land. This saw some factions of the O'Toole and O'Byrne families flee from their ancestral lands to the Wicklow Mountains. However, while many fled, many more stayed behind. Indeed, for those who had been poor under the Gaelic kings, remaining under Norman lords probably meant very little difference in their living standards as the Normans were happy to incorporate them into their new economic system as serfs. Nevertheless, there is no denying that the world of Gaelic Ireland was being turned upside down. The invasion initiated a bizarre form of revolution where the entire economy was transformed. This all happened in a relatively short time period. 
no more than a few decades, and in 1174 it was well underway in Leinster. Indeed, we know Marcus Julius saw this firsthand. The story of the granting of land that opened the show illustrates he was actually directly involved in this process. That deed that opened the show saw that he was a witness when Hammond MacTurkle was allowed to keep some lands he had owned prior to the invasion. But what is more interesting and telling is the lands not mentioned in the deed. While the grant did give Hammond some land, most of his family's estates were not mentioned because they had already been confiscated and granted to a man called Walter de Riddlesford, one of the early Norman adventurers in Ireland. This was just one case of dispossession of previous landowners, but there were dozens of similar cases happening across Leinster. Even to a man like Marcus Studius, who probably didn't know Ireland very well, it would have been obvious that the country was changing in 1174 and changing fast. In Leinster at least, it was clear that an entire way of life was being destroyed as the Normans conquered and settled territory. Worse still, for the Gaelic Irish, it was obvious that this change would not be limited to Leinster. Hugh de Lacey was already pushing into Meath, expanding the conquest. Gaelic life, as it had evolved in Ireland over centuries, was clearly now under threat. However, as we shall see in the next episode, by the end of 1174, it was clear, despite the division within Gaelic Ireland, the conquest would prove a lot more difficult than originally anticipated. Tune in next time when I pick up the story in 1174 and the normal advance slows down and falters. Before I go folks, I want to mention that address for the crowdfunding campaign for my new book again. It's irishhistorypodcast.ie forward slash book. As I said, if you have been thinking of contributing to the show, this is the best time to do it and you will be getting something pretty cool in return. A new book on the Black Death. Until next time, Slán. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com.